Well, again, my name is Caleb Cunningham, and it's a joy for me to be here tonight. And Mark told you my topic, the topic has been assigned to me, is the history of the English Bible. The history of the English Bible. 717. That's the number of languages with a complete Bible. 717. And there are only a little over 7,000 total languages in the world. 717 are the only languages that have a complete Bible. Being able to read the Bible is a gift. It's a gift. The Word of God is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given to His people. And aside from Jesus Christ and aside from the Holy Spirit, there is nothing greater than the Bible. It's full of truth. It's full of conviction. It's full of passion. It's full of love and mercy from the God of the universe to his people. What a gift that we hold in the palm of our hands. The Bible is a gift. And what greater investment can we possibly make in this life than to spend time wrestling Uh, reading, studying the Word of God. Having a Bible is a gift. It is a precious gift. And there have been many people throughout history and the providence of God who has helped given us this gift. And my prayer tonight is that you'll leave this place loving your Bible that you'll leave this place just cherishing your Bible. And it was centuries ago that only church leaders were the only people who could read the Bible. Uh, Those church leaders thought that if common people could read the Bible, they would question the church's authority. They They would question those leaders' authority. And this placed a barrier between the common people and the Bible. Uh, The only church that existed in Western Europe during that time was the Roman Catholic Church. And church was not voluntary. It it was mandatory. And and believers obediently followed the priests during the Catholic Mass. They they did whatever the priests told them to do. They they, they, they did nothing else. There was nothing else for them to read. They only knew what those leaders told them. And sometimes priests would, they would face the altar and they would turn their backs away from the congregation. And priests spoke in Latin, and they read the Bible in Latin. (coughs) And these believers, they followed these priests by doing all these mandatory things, all these random things, and they believed that it was their true path to heaven. Then along came a man by the name of John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. It was during the 14th century. It was a dark time for the church. It was a dark time for the people of God. Uh, There were man-made traditions and religious superstitions that had risen to to dominate the church. It had risen to dominate uh, the people. It had risen to suffocate the people of God. Uh, The true gospel light was dimmed. It was almost extinguished. Uh, The truth of God was was buried under under tons of debris of tradition and, and false things about God. And it was during this time that the prominent English theologian named John Wycliffe stepped on the stage of history. 
the religious scene in England was, was pitch black. It was dark. Uh, spiritual authority was not founded on scripture. It was on quotes from church fathers or church tradition or councils and the Pope himself. So from the pulpit to the pew, the church was filled with unconverted people who were held captive in the chains of unbelief. And they knew nothing. They had nothing. Uh, John Fox, the, the author of the Fox's Books of Martyrs, he described this time period that was so dark. He said this, Christianity was in a sad state. And although everyone knew the name of Christ, few, if anyone, if any understood his doctrine. Although everyone knew the name of Christ, only a few understood his doctrine. So to confront these issues, Wycliffe stepped to the, to the forefront to change the course of English history. He was the most learned scholar of his day. He was a professor at Oxford, which was the top school in Europe at the time. And he was known as the morning star of the Reformation. In the night sky, the morning star is a, a celestial body that, that, that shines really, really bright in the dark scar, in the dark sky. In the same way, his role was to resurrect the first glimmer of the gospel by translating the Bible into English. And this monumental undertaking was, was driven by his deep conviction that the Bible is the word of God and it must be in the hands of God's people. Wycliffe said this, I wish manuscripts of the New Testament and the Old Testament to be read and studied in the common language. And this was the passion of his life. But the Roman Catholic Church had, had refused to translate the Bible into the native tongue of the English people because they were afraid they were going to lose control over them. All that was available was a Latin Bible, the Vulgate, but the common person could not read Latin. Uh, during this time, to this date, at that date, the average English person lived their entire life without ever seeing a copy of Scripture, much less being able to read it or hear it in their own language. But Wycliffe was determined to change this by launching the, the biggest task in the history of the church at that time by translating the Bible into English. He knew once scripture would, would be in the hands of people, he knew that transformation of the heart would spread like a fire. He, he knew that souls would be changed. He, he knew lives would be converted. He knew that it was spread and spread to the ends of the earth. And with the helps of his followers called uh, the Lollards and one of his assistants and many other faithful scribes, he produced dozens of English language manuscripts, copies of the scriptures. Uh, the first handwritten Bible that he wrote uh, was produced in the 1380s. And because of, his, of Wycliffe and his, his Bible, it encouraged Christians to think for themselves. It encouraged Christians to, to think for themselves and to not to think that the Pope was in control, to not to think that the spiritual authority was the final say. And thus the king and the, all of his leaders, they were threatened. And so his Bible was banned. And those who promoted his, his following, who followed him, they were branded as heretics and they were burned at the stakes. So fear, flames, and fire, it came between the common people in the Bible. But Wycliffe and his followers, they did not care. He knew what needed to be done. 
He knew what God's people needed, and that was a copy of his word in their own language. And the Pope was so furious by his teachings and his translation of the Bible into English that 44 years after Wycliffe had died, he ordered the bones of Wycliffe to be dug up, crushed, and scattered into the river. The Pope did not want the Bible into English. Uh, Dr. Steve Lawson, he wrote a book recently that just came out about Wycliffe translating to the Bible into English. Lawson said this, for this heroic accomplishment, Wycliffe will long be recognized as a valiant warrior of the truth of Scripture. Let me tell you, we all owe a debt to John Wycliffe. Our history begins here. He was a forerunner of the Reformation, and he was a forerunner of the English Bible, leaving a testimony of faithfulness and boldness. He and his followers, they, they stared danger right in his face over and over again so that you can have your copy of the English Bible today. He did not care the danger. He faced it. And one of his followers, Wycliffe's followers, was a man by the name John Huss. And he actively promoted Wycliffe's idea that, that people should be permitted to read the Bible into their own language. And they should oppose the, the evil of the Roman church. And they should oppose the Pope. And he was commanded to recant uh, for following Wycliffe. But he said this, if yet I please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. He wanted to follow the truth. He, he finally tasted the sweetness of God's word and he followed him with his whole life. And then eventually in 1415, Huss was burned at the stake and Wycliffe's manuscript Bibles was used to start the fire. That's how much they hated God's word to be translated to the people of the English language. And this is what happens when you get the, the Bible into the language of the people. And souls are saved. Lives are changed. We just heard John and Cammie, how their, their, their lives have been changed. They, they heard the word of God. They read the word of God. And now their lives are changed forever. And so have you, when you've come to Christ and you heard the word of God, your life has been changed. So Wycliffe and Huss, they knew that the people needed the word of God in their language. Then we come to a man named Johann Gutenberg. Gutenberg is very important in, in the history of the English Bible. He invented the printing press in the 1450s. And the first book to ever be printed was a Latin language Bible. And it was printed in Germany. And Gutenberg's Bibles were very beautiful. They were very beautiful. As each leaf Gutenberg printed was later colorfully hand illuminated. He made these, these Bibles very beautiful. They were spectacular during this time. And ironically, though he created what was probably to believe, in my opinion, the, the most important invention in the history of mankind, uh, he had, he never made any money. He never made any business. He, he was in, involved in, uh, with some wicked, wicked, uh, coworkers who took his business, business away. He never really made anything from that. But nevertheless, this invention of the printing press, meant that Bibles could finally be effectively produced in large quantities in a short period of time. This was huge. This was essential to the success of the Reformation. And he said this about his invention. And this was his driving, this was his heart, this was his driving force. He said, it is a press, certainly, but a press from which shall flow in inexhaustible streams. 
And through it, God will spread his word. A spring of truth shall, shall flow from it. Like a new star, it shall scatter the darkness of ignorance and cause a light heretofore known to shine among men. And the printing of the Bible for the masses encouraged each believer to read God's word, to understand who God is, implying that everybody is responsible for their own salvation, not the Pope, not the King. They are responsible themselves. His efforts ensured Christianity did not die or did not end at the church door. Rather, Gutenberg's invention made every believer's house a training ground. Made every believer's house a training ground. Then in the 1940s, a, another Oxford professor by the name uh, of Thomas Linacre, he, he was a personal physician to, to King Henry VII and King Henry VIII, and he decided to learn Greek. He decided to learn Greek just for fun. And after reading the Gospels in Greek and he compared it to the Latin Vulgate, he wrote this in his diary. Either this, the original Greek, either this is not the gospel or we are not Christians. In other words, the Latin Vulgate had become so corrupt, it become so evil that it is no longer even preserved for the, it no longer preserved the message of the gospel. It never, it no longer kept the purity of the gospel. Yet the church still threatened to kill anyone who read a scripture in their own language. Even though Latin was not an original language of the scriptures, the king and the pope and all of his people killed anyone and threatened anyone who wanted to have a Bible in their own language. And then, in 19, and then in 1496, excuse me, a man by the name of John Collett, uh, another Oxford professor and the son of the mayor of London, he also started reading the New Testament in Greek just for fun. And then when he, after he was reading the New Testament in Greek, he started translating it into English verbally for his students at Oxford. And then later he did it for the public at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. The people were so hungry for the word of God. They wanted the word of God in the language that they could understand. That within six months at St. Paul's Cathedral, there were 20,000 people packed into the church trying to hear him read the word of God in their own language. 20,000 people. He said himself, Colette said himself, he is just speaking out of zeal. He's speaking out of zeal. A man sorrowing of the for the ruin of the church. He knew that the church was dying or dead. And he knew that people were hungry for the word of God. And he knew how important it was for the people to have a Bible in their own language. And then in considering the experiences of Leonard Cray and Coled, the, there was a great scholar by the name of Erasmus. He's actually a student at Oxford, one of these men. And he was so moved to, to correct the, the corrupt Latin Vulgate that in 1516, he published a Greek Greek, Latin, parallel, New Testament. And the Latin part that he translate, translated was no longer corrupt. He, he brought his own fresh rendering of the text from, from the more accurate and the reliable Greek, which he had managed to, uh, to grab a hold of um, for many years that he acquired. And this milestone was the first non-Latin 
uh, Latin Vulgate text of scripture to be produced. His New Testament, it focused on how just how corrupt the Latin Vulgate had become, how evil has become, and how important it was to, to go back to, to, to use the original languages and how important it was to go back to the, the original Greek and how important it was to go back to the original Hebrew and to translate them faithfully into the English or to the languages of the common people. He knew how important it was to get back to the original. Uh, there's a historian, a, a well-known scholar named David Daniel. He, he described the magnitude of this event. This was the first time that the Greek New Testament had been printed. It is no exaggeration to say that it set fire to Europe. Luther translated this, Luther translated it into his famous German version. And a few years later, they appeared in translations from the Greek into most European, European vernaculars. They were the true bases of the popular Reformation. He knew, he knew, Erasmus knew that the word of God changes lives. He knew that it spreads like fire. They knew it. This man knew it. These men knew that. And then came along William Tyndale. Tyndale is called the, the captain of the army of the reformers. And you need to know Tyndale. And he holds the distinction of being the first man to ever print the New Testament in the English language from the original manuscripts, from the original languages, and not the Latin Vulgate. This was the driving passion of Tyndale's life, to see the Bible translated from the Greek and, to, and from the Hebrew to the ordinary English language for every person in England to read. He was a true scholar and a genius. He was fluent in eight languages. It was said that, that historians say that he was so fluent in these eight languages that any one of them could be, be, be believed it was his native tongue. This man was really gifted. And he's been referred to also as the architect of the English language. There's so many phrases that, that Tyndale coined that, that we use today. He, he really helped create the English language. He was the father of the English language. And when he was 28 years, years old in 1522, he, he was serving as a tutor in the home of a man named John Walsh. And he spent most of his time studying Erasmus's Greek New Testament, which was just printed six years before this. And every day, Tyndale was, was seeing these truths come alive. Every day, he was seeing God's word just, just speak to him, speak to his soul, speak to his heart. And he was an ordained, ordained Catholic priest. And this was a big no-no for him. He knew he wasn't supposed to be doing this. And he didn't care. The God was just speaking to him through his word. And John Fox tells us that one day, a Catholic scholar came to dinner with Tyndale. And he said this, a Catholic scholar, Catholic scholar said this to Tyndale, we were better without God's law than the Pope's. In response, Tyndale spoke his famous words. He said this, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, I will see to it that the boy who drives the plowshare knows more of the scripture than you, sir. He, 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 was, he was determined to get the English Bible into everyday people. And he finished this English translation four years later in Germany. And he had to smuggle it into England into bales of cloth. 
And then in 1534, a few years later, he, he, he published a revised New Testament. He was always growing. He was always studying. He was always trying to get the best translation possible to the people. And he came out with another edition. And he's learned Hebrew this time. And he's always uh, understanding the connection between the Old and New Testaments. And he knew that the people needed a Bible and the best translation possible for them to understand who God is. And, and Daniel uh, he's the premier scholar of Tyndale. He's a phenomenal book. And he, he says this of the 1534 New Testament. He said, it's the glory of Tyndale's life's work. It's the glory of Tyndale's life's work. And if Tyndale was always singing one note, in other words, if he had one thing that dominated his life, that was the crescendo, the song, the crescendo, the song of his life was the finished and refined New Testament of the English language. And for the first time ever in history, the Greek New Testament was translated into English. It's just remarkable. And for the first time ever, it was printed and available to the people. His craftsmanship with the English language was just genius. He translated two thirds of the Bible so well that his translations endured even until today. Hey, this was not mere, merely a, a literary phen, uh, phenom. This was a spiritual explosion. This was a spiritual explosion. What Tyndale did was light a fire for the Reformation in England. So what did it cost Tyndale under these hostile circumstances to stay faithful to his calling as a translator of the Bible. Well, he was captured and he was in prison for 18 months and he was charged with heresy. He was charged as a heretic for translating the Bible for everyday people. And he never had the chance to finish the Old Testament. And those months in prison, they were not easy. They were long days leading to death. But we get a glimpse into the person or into the prison to see Tyndale's condition and his passion. He wrote a letter in 1535 and it was addressed to an unnamed officer. Now listen to this. This is what he writes. <clears throat> I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has, a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head a warmer coat also for this which I have is very thin. A piece of cloth, please too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He who has a woolen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it, please. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. Listen to this. But most of all, I beg, and I beseech you, your clemency, to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, to have the Hebrew grammar and the Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in the study. Tyndale loved the word of God. He had a passion for the Bible. We don't know if his requests were granted. He did stay in that prison through the winter and his verdict was sealed in August, 1536. 
he was formally condemned as a heretic and he's degraded, degraded from the priesthood. <laughs> then in early October, this heroic figure, a man who we should haul to get to know more, he died in martyr's death by being strangled to death by an iron chain. He was strangled to death by an iron chain. And after which his corpse was lit. His corpse was burned. And Tyndale was hated so much, that wasn't enough. They put gunpowder around his neck. And so when the fires came up to his neck, his corpse blew up and it had been spread around to a million pieces. He was 42 years old. He never married and he was never buried. Tyndale loved the word of God. He loved the Bible. And this painting that is shown behind me is just very neat. It is painted in oil canvas. And the original work is from the brush of an unknown artist. And it was produced in the late 17th or early 18th century. And it now hangs in the National Portrait Gallery in London. And as the subject of this portrait, Tyndale is seated. And as you see, he's dressed in all black. And he's surrounded by a, a dark brown background. And his face and his hands, they, they seem to glow from the light of a candle that is hidden from view. If you notice in his left hand, he is balancing a book uh, to keeping it horizontal so it won't fall. And this book is a Bible in which he was devoted to. In his right hand, he appears to be resting on a dark table while his right index finger is pointed emphatically to the Bible. Tyndale is directing everybody's attention away from himself. And instead, he draws every eye toward the sacred book in which he absolutely believed in which he dedicated, uh, uh, which he dedicated his whole life to. He loved the Bible. And beneath that Bible and that painting, the artist painted a, a banner. And it signified Tyndale as an Oxford and Cambridge scholar. And it's written in Latin, but in English it says this, to scatter Roman darkness by this light, the loss of land and life, I will reconcile. This bold message represents the life's mission of William Tyndale. By translating the Bible into English, this man ignited the flame that would banish the spiritual darkness during that time. His translation of the scriptures is just, Unbelievable, unbelievable. It, it is, he just ushered in a new day, a new day. And the irony to me in this portrait is that Tyndale never sat to get a portrait done. He always had to run and be in hiding and to protect his identities. That way he can try to finish his work. And only after his gruesome death, he would be known that he would be remembered. Today, there are only two known copies left of Tyndale's first edition of the New Testament. And any copies printed prior to 1570 are extremely valuable. The Master Seminary was just gifted a 1534 Tyndale New Testament. Uh, it's in the, the MacArthur Center up there in the seminary building. I had the chance to hold it a few weeks back. And I would just say, as I was preparing for this and thinking about Tyndale, it was overwhelming to hold. 
just knowing the price that he paid to have an English Bible and holding that Bible. It reminds me of the valuable treasure that you and I have, and that is an English Bible. You have a treasure above all treasures, the English Bible. Steve Lawson writes in his excellent book on Tyndale, whatever your Bible translation is, it stands on the shoulders of one man, William Tyndale. You and I owe a lot to William Tyndale. Your Bible has bloodstains on it. Cherish it. Taste the sweetness of it. Absorb it. Memorize it. Teach it. Live it. Spread it. Love your Bible. John Fox reports that Tyndale's last words were this. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Tyndale wanted the king to know that how important it was to have an English Bible in the hands of people. Uh, this prayer would be answered just three years later, in 1539, when King Henry VIII finally allowed and even funded the printing of an English Bible known as the Great Bible. Uh, before that could happen, though, uh, there were two men by the name of Miles Coverdale and John Rogers. And they were loyal disciples uh, of Tyndale. And they carried the English Bible project of Tyndale's Ford. And they, they, they wanted to finish. They wanted to see it completed. And Coverdale, Miles Coverdale, he finished translating the Old Testament. And in 1535, he printed the first complete Bible in the English language. However, rather than translating from their original languages, he just translated from Luther's, Martin Luther's Old Testament and the Latin Vulgate. And it's known as a Coverdale Bible. And Coverdale, he loved the word. And he eagerly exhorted everyone from the king to the common guy to read it. He wanted everyone to read it. And in the prologue of his Bible, he wrote this. For as soon as the Bible was cast aside and no more put into exercise, then began every one of his own head to write whatever came into his brain. And that seemed to be good in his own eyes. And so grew the darkness of men's traditions. Coverdale knew the wickedness of traditions. He knew the wickedness of what was going on. And he knew that the Bible needed to be in the common tongue. Coverdale knew that. And then John Rogers, he went on to print the second complete English Bible in 1537. Rogers met Tyndale in Holland. They became friends. And Tyndale was, uh, was, was a big part. He played a big role in Rogers' conversion. Tyndale converted Rogers to, to the Protestant views. And Rogers, who, who was a former priest, he even married someone, which was a big no-no for priests. He even married someone. And after Tyndale died, Rogers came into the possession of the Old Testament translation work that Tyndale had done. And he set out to complete Tyndale's translation from the original languages. And this distinguished it from the, the Coverdale Bible. And Rogers did this work under the pen name Thomas Matthew. And that's where we get the name of this Bible, which is called the Matthews Bible, the Matthews Bible. And then in 1547, King Edward VI, he came to the throne of England and he was a Protestant and he afforded freedom of worship, which the land and the people enjoyed just for a brief season. 
It was during this period that, that Rogers gained uh, popularity in the leadership of the English Reformation. But things quickly went south when, the, when Edward died in the coming of Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary. She came, she came to the throne and her sentiments were just the opposite of Edward's. She was a devout Catholic who, who hated the Protestants and she hated the freedom of worship. And, and Rogers eventually was a prisoner under her. And he was first a prisoner at home, then he was in jail in England in January of 1553. His wife was not allowed to visit him at all. And apparently he suffered uh, some of the worst things ever known to man from the jailers. Rogers was, was pressured to, to compromise and to, to renounce the Protestant faith. But for, he affirmed that he would not. He affirmed that he would stand his ground. He affirmed that he is going to hold to the, to the truth of God's word. He affirmed that, that he is going to finish this project. He, he affirmed that he was going to set this out and to finish it. And soon later, his death was, was, was near. And when it, when it came time for his execution, he, he was brought by the sheriffs of, uh, of Newgate to Smithfield where the following conversation took place. And it's just amazing. Uh, one of the officers asked Rogers this, if that he would revoke his, his horrible doctrine and his evil opinion of, of the mass. And he, Rogers responded this way, that which I have preached, I will seal with my own blood. I will seal with my own blood. The clergy said this to him, then you are a heretic. You are a heretic. And Roger said this, that shall be known at the day of judgment. Rogers knew his confidence was in God. He's been studying the word of God. He knew what was right. He knew what was biblical. Rogers then was brought to the stake and it said that he was quoting a psalm as he came. And there were thousands of people there to see this, thousands of people. And people who witnessed his testimony as he wonderfully rejoiced at his constant firmness in the face of the fire. His own wife and 11 children met him on the road as he went to the stake. And the youngest is a newborn baby who he never met, who he has never seen. He saw her for the first time as he's heading to, to the stake. And he saw her in the, in, in the arms of his wife. And then they attached him to the post. This is amazing. They lit the fire. They put it under him. And when it had taken hold of his legs and it got to his shoulders, Rogers, as he's feeling no pain, he put his hands in the flame as if he was just washing them in cold water, washing his hands in the fire. And after lifting up his hands to heaven, not removing them from the fire until all the flames had devoured them. This happy and joyful martyr yielded up his spirits to his heavenly maker. Even a few moments before his death, a written pardon was brought to him to recant, but he refused. He refused. John Rogers gave his life for Christ. He gave his life to get the Bible into the English language. He gave his life for you 
to have a copy of God's word in your language. He wanted people to know Christ. Then we come to 1539. And there's a man named Thomas Cranmer and he's Archbishop of Canterbury. And he was hired by, by, hired by, or he hired Miles Coverdale at the request of King Henry VIII to publish what is called the Great Bible. And it became the first English Bible authorized for public use. And it was distributed to, it was distributed to every church and it was chained to the, chained to the pulpit. And a reader was even provided so that they could hear the word of God in English. And it was seen that because of this great Bible that William Tyndale's prayer, his last wish had been granted just three years after he was martyred. And Cramer's Bible, published by Coverdale, it was known as the great Bible due to its great size. It's been said that it's over 14 inches tall. I mean, this thing is massive. Some seven editions of this version or printed between 1539 and December 1541. This is monumental in the history of the English Bible. Then we have King Henry VIII. And he didn't change, um, his, he didn't have a change of conscience regarding the public, publishing of the English Bible because of a good thing. He, he had more senator motives. He went to the Pope to permit him to divorce his wife and marry his mistress. King Henry VIII went to the Pope to ask for a divorce so he can marry his mistress. Well, the Pope refused. Pope said no. So King Henry responded by marrying his mistresses anyway, later having his mistress and his wife executed. Man was just wicked. And he did this by, by just showing the Pope that he could do whatever he wants. So he renounced Roman Catholicism. And he took England out from under Rome's religious control. And he declared himself as the reigning head of state to be the new head of the church. Uh, this new branch of the Christian church, it's either Roman Catholic nor truly Protestant, it became known as the Anglican Church or, or the Church of England. And King Henry acted essentially as the, the Pope, as the leader. And his first act was to further defy the wishes of Rome by funding the printing of the scriptures in English by funding the first legal English Bible. God takes evil circumstances and still works it out for his good. He did this just for spite. But the flow of freedom continued up and down through the 1540s and into the 1550s. And after he took the throne, eventually he died. Then came the reign, the reign of Queen Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. And she was the next obstacle to the printing of the Bible in English. She was possessed in her, her quest to, to return England back to the Roman church. As we saw earlier, John Rogers and Thomas Kramer and many others were burned both at the stake. And Mary went on to burn other reformers at the stake by the hundreds for the crime of just being a Protestant. She hated them. She was wicked. And this era was known as the Marian ex exile. And many refugees fled from England with little hope of seeing their home or their friends or their family again. And in the 1550s, the church of Geneva, Switzerland, was very sympathetic to the reformer refugees and was only of, one of only a few safe havens for desperate people. So many people were just going to Geneva and, and Switzerland. 
And many of them met in Geneva, led by Miles Coverdale and John Fox. And John Fox, uh, I've said his name a couple of times. He's a publisher of Fox's Books of Martyrs. It is a phenomenal book of, uh, it's probably the only book this day that has exhaustive reference work on the persecution of early Christians and the early church. You need a copy of this book. You need to have this on your shelf. It would just stir your soul. You need one. They're sold out in the bookstore. I went today, so you need to order it on Amazon. Um, because you need a copy of this book. And there at this church with Coverdale and uh, Fox leading this, they had the protection of the great theologian, you may know this name, John Calvin, John Knox. They were there protecting these men and these women. Uh, the Church of Geneva determined to, to, to produce a Bible that would educate their families while they're in exile. And out of that, that New Testament was completed in 1557 and it was first published in 1560 and became known as the Geneva Bible, the Geneva Bible. And due to a passage in Genesis describing the, the clothing that God fashioned for Adam and Eve uh, from the Garden of Eden as breeches, or as in the South, we say riches, riches, riches. Some people refer to the Geneva Bible as the breeches Bible. I like that. The Geneva Bible was the first Bible to, to add number of verses to chapters. Are you think, do you thank God for the, for the verses of your Bible? You know where Philippians 121 is? You know where that is. You know where John 3.16 is, right? That's because the Geneva Bible, that's where it first came from. And every chapter was also accompanied by extensive notes and references, so thorough and complete, it's also considered the first English study Bible. Geneva Bible is first considered as the first English study Bible. Uh, William Shakespeare, he quotes hundreds of times in his plays from the, this translation, from this Bible. And this Bible became the Bible of choice for over 100 years of English-speaking Christians. And between 1560 and 1644, at least 144 editions of this Bible were published. And a thorough examination of the King James Bible shows clearly that its translators were influenced by the Geneva Bible. This Geneva Bible was popular. And this Geneva Bible retains over 90% of William Tyndale's original English translation. Again, this shows the genius of Tyndale's work. Uh, the, the Geneva Bible, in fact, remained more popular than the King James Version until decades after its original lease in 1611. Geneva Bible, this is what I thought was interesting. It holds the honor of being the first Bible taken to, the America, to America. Geneva Bible was the first Bible taken to America, and it was the Bible of the Puritans and the Pilgrims. It's truly the Bible of the Protestant Reformation. But strangely, there's not many uh, you can find today. There's a couple replicas out there. Um, but this Bible was this monumental, monumental for the English Bible. It was huge. And then with the end of Queen Mary's bloody reign, the reformers could safely return to England. And the Anglican church, now under Queen Elizabeth, she tolerated printing and distribution of Geneva Version Bibles in England but she hated the marginal notes and they really want to tone that down with, with, with less notes. And 1568, a revision of the great Bible known as the Bishop Bible was introduced. And it's been called the rough draft of the King James Version, the Bishop's Bible. 
And the Geneva may have simply been too much to compete with because it really didn't get much traction. Then with the death of Queen Elizabeth, quickly now because of time, the death of Queen Elizabeth I, Prince James VI of Scotland became King James I of England. And then the clergy approached the new king and announced the desire for a new translation to replace the Bishop's Bible. However, the, the, the leaders did not want controversial marginal notes. They didn't want controversial notes proclaiming that the Pope was Antichrist or things like that. They just wanted the Bible for the people with scripture references only for word clarification or cross references. And this translation was to end all translations, if you will, for, for a little while. And they took into consideration the Tyndale New Testament, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible. And then in 1606, the scholars engaged in private research. And in 1607, 1609, the work was assembled. And then in 1611, the first of the huge 16-inch tall Bible, which is known as the 1611 King James Bible, came off the printing press. And one year after the huge, these huge 1611 King James Bibles were printed, they were chained to every church and every pulpit around. And then eventually they began printing them into to normal size uh, Bibles. Uh, they, they wanted to be produced so individuals could have their own personal copy of the Bible. And unfortunately, though, <laughs> this King James Bible, it took decades to overcome the more popular popular. Geneva Bible. And one of the great ironies of history, I thought, as I was studying this, is that many Protestant Christians today embrace the King James Bible as the only legitimate English language translation. Yeah, it's not even a Protestant translation. It was printed to compete with the Protestant Geneva Bible by authorities who throughout most of history were hostile to Protestants. They, they were killing people. And while many Protestants today quickly assign the full blame of persecution to the Roman Catholic Church, you should know that even England, even after England broke for the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England continued to persecute Protestants through the 1600s. And one famous example of this is John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. And throughout the 1600s, as Puritans and pilgrims fled the religious persecution of England to cross the Atlantic and to start a new free, new free nation in America, they took with them their precious Geneva Bible and they rejected the King James Bible. America was founded upon the Geneva Bible, not the 1611 King James Bible. They hated it. And you need to know your history the Geneva Bible, which is textually 95% the same as the 1611 King James Version, is your history. But nevertheless, King James Bible, it turned out to be an excellent and wonderful translation. And it became the most printed book in the history of the world. It's the only book with 1 billion copies in print. 1 billion copies in print. And in fact, for over 250 years, the King James Version reigned without much of a rival. All King James Bibles, I want you to know this, all King James Bibles today that are published in America are actually the 1769 Bakersfield King James Bible. It's not the original 1611. 
the original 1611 that's in the preface of that is, is, is deceivingly included by the publishers for sales. They put it in there just for sales. It's not the 1611. It doesn't come from there. It's actually the 1769. And the only way to train a true unaltered 1611 version is to purchase an original one, which is very, very expensive. But it was a monumental translation and it really affected the history of the English Bible. And although the first Bible printed in America was done in the native Indian language by a man named John Eliot in 1663, the first English language Bible to be printed in America was by a man named Robert Aiken in 1782, and he printed a King James Version. Uh, later, Aiken died, and uh, before that, before he died, <laughs> he, was all, he was also the only Bible ever authorized in the, uh, by the United States Congress. He was commended by President George Washington for providing Americans Bibles after the Revolutionary War. And in 1808, after he died, his daughter named Jane Aiken, she's one of the first women printers in the United States, and she's the first woman in the United States to print an English translation of the Bible. And in 1791, Isaac Collins, uh, he vastly improved upon the quality and size of typesetting of American Bibles, and he produced the first family Bible printed in America. It was also a King James Version. Then in 1791, Isaiah Thomas, not the basketball player, Isaiah Thomas published the first illustrated Bible printed in America, and that was also a King James Version. Then we have Noah Webster, just a few years after producing his famous dictionary of the English language. You know Webster's Dictionary? This is this guy, Noah Webster. The public still, it didn't get anywhere because the public still remained loyal to this King James Version and it didn't have much impact. And it was not really to the 1880s that England's own planned replacement for the King James Bible, which was called the English Revised Version, would become the first English language Bible to gain popular acceptance as a post-King James Version, modern hate English Bible. Uh, this was very popular because it had in there, it was, it was missing the absence of the 14 uh, Apocrypha books. Uh, at this point, the, basically the Apocrypha is in the Roman Catholic Church and has things that are not really biblical. They're not in agreement with the Bible. I'm in a short way to say it. Um, but up until this point, every Protestant Bible, not just Catholic Bibles, had 80 books, not 66. It had the Apocrypha. Uh, these books were part of virtually every printing of the Tyndale Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, all those other Bibles that we talked about until their removal in the 1880s. And the original King James Version had the Apocrypha. But finally, over the last 120 years, the Protestant Church has rejected these books and removed them from their Bibles. And it started with this one. And then the Americans responded, the Americans responded to the England's ERV Bible by publishing the nearly identical American Standard Version, ASV, in 1901. It was also widely accepted and embraced churches throughout America for many decades. It was in 1971, it was revised again, and it was called the New American Standard Version, or the NASV, or, or short, NASB, or the NAS. This New American Standard Bible is considered by nearly all evangelical scholars and translators to be the most accurate word-for-word -word translation of original Greek and Hebrew scriptures. In 1985, the NASB went through an update and removed thee, thou, and, and thy, and it remains still popular. You may have it. It's the one I use, the NAS 1995. Somehow, 
However, though, a lot of people are not ha happy with it because it didn't flow as easy as uh, conversational English. So for this reason, 1973, the NIV, the international version was produced and it's offered as a dynamic equivalent. And it really was to, to hit a broad scale of people as that uh, translation. And then another version came out in 1982 called the New King James Version. And their original intent was to keep the basic wording of the King James. But long story short, it didn't work out. Uh, they tried to do it for sales. Um, it's still a really good version. Uh, I highly recommend it. I love that translation. Um, but it, they only did it really for sales for the original King James. Great translation, though. And then 2002, scholars came out with a new translation called the English Standard Version, the ESV. Many of you may have that. And it's very popular for its readability and accuracy. And it was held, led by a 14-member translation oversight in which J.I. Packer was the general editor for that. He's a well-known um, author, man of God. You should really get to know him. Then in 2020, some men met, one of them being our pastor, John, Pastor John, to explore the idea of updating the NASB 1995. And working directly from the original languages to update the text of the 95, the, the goal for the LSB was to preserve and honor its predecessors with what was accomplished. And then the Legacy Standard Bible was completed by a team of scholars from the seminary and the university. And two of those men is our very own shepherd and our under-shepherd, Mark and Joe. Uh, Zakovich and Kavich, they both say their name differently. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they could translate the whole Bible. I can't say any of their last names. You know, <laughs> this got <kind of> ironic. <laughs> um, yeah, LSB is a wonderful translation. You all, if you were here at the Christmas party, you got one uh, as a gift. It's a great translation. You need to read it. So by way of conclusion, because of time, let me just ask you this question. Can you imagine never having heard a single word from God in your own language? Can you imagine never having heard a single word from God in your own language? English-speaking Christians have many options when it comes to finding a Bible translation nowadays. BibleGateway.com currently offers more than 60 different English translations. With so many translations available, it's so easy to take for granted well, what we have as an English Bible to read. But we, as we've seen, it's not, it's not always been easy, has it? It costs a lot. And there was a time of translating or just reading the Bible in English was a crime punishable by death. And you must remember the main purpose of the Protestant Reformation was to get the Bible out of the chains of being trapped into an ancient language and into a modern spoken conversational language of the present day. William Tyndale fought and died for the right to print the Bible in the common spoken modern English of his day. And he boldly stated, if God spare my life, I will see it to that boy who drives a plowshare knows more of the scripture than you. That statement has become true. Let me ask you again. Can you imagine never having heard a single word from God in your own language? Think about that. Think about where you would be. Men and women have suffered to give you the word of God. 
There are blood stains on your body. The smell of fire is all around your Bible. The gunpowder is still fresh on your Bible. Men and women have worked hard to get the Bible in your language and into your hands. Men and women have died to make sure you know the gospel. What is the gospel? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that every man that believeth in him perish not, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that none that believe in him should perish, but should have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and those whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son and that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What is the gospel? God is holy. You are not. You are a sinner that deserve his, his wrath, his judgment. But in his mercy and grace, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for your sins. So why is it important to talk about the history of the English Bible? Why is it important to understand it? Because God preordained all this to happen so that you can know him through his word, so that you can know his gospel, so that you can know Jesus, so that you can know how to live as a Christian. There is no book like the Christian Bible. There's no book like the Christian Bible. It is a privilege. Please understand me. It is a privilege to have a copy of God's word in your hand. And if you have one, and if you don't, please see me afterwards. And if you have one, it's the most valuable thing that you own because you have in your Bible the very word of the creator and redeemer of the universe. It's been said that the Bible is more up to date than tomorrow's newspaper. That's so true. It's relevant to your life because it is divinely inspired. It is divinely infallible and it's divinely authoritative. 
Therefore, I exhort you to cherish your Bible. Love your Bible. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. It is a gift. What a privilege. Let's not play games with these precious words. These are precious words from the God of heaven and earth. And you have a copy of it. Let's not play with it. These are the words of him. And thousands have died to preserve them for us this day. Thank God for the Bible. Thank God the Bible. Father, I thank you for the Bible that we each own, a, a Bible that we can trust, a Bible that we can read, a Bible that we can study. Thank you for giving us your word in our own language. There's so many people on this planet they do not have that privilege. Lord, with great privilege comes great responsibility. Help us to contribute to the advancement of your kingdom through the gospel of your son. And may we never neglect your word. We ask this in your son's precious name, the name above all names. Jesus, amen.